Hello, everybody. My name is Nick Cohen, and welcome to The Bunker. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Gideon Rackman of the Financial Times, who has written The Age of the Strongman about personality cults, dictatorial and quasi-dictatorial leaders sprouting up everywhere in the world in the 21st century about who they are and why they have appeared. Gideon, lovely to have you on. Good to be on. Thanks, Nick. Your book, which I thoroughly recommend, can I start with a question? The scope is global. You cover everywhere from China to Mexico to Israel to Saudi Arabia to Hungary to Britain the United States. Do you see a common cause in the rise of strongman politics? I think it's difficult to say there's a single cause. I think there are economic elements. There are, if you like, sociological, cultural elements, in particular backlash against immigration and majoritarianism. There's technological elements. I don't think it's a coincidence or entirely coincidence that this happens in the era of social media. And I think there's also an element of emulation so that uh, when the first kind of archetype comes in, Putin in in, uh, 31st of December 1999, he's kind of a lone figure in big powers. Obviously, you've always had kind of strong men dotted around smaller places and seems like an anomaly. But I think people begin to imitate him and by 2020 or 2018, you would, I say, have strongman leaders in the two most populous countries of the world, China and India, in Russia, in the United States, and in the two most populous countries in Latin America, in in Mexico and Brazil. So it's really a truly global trend. Because it works, and also because nothing happens to Putin. In some ways, in his early years, Putin is a success. He gets Russia out of the financial crisis of the 1990s. But I'm quite struck, and we'll talk about Britain later, about it's very dangerous to let politicians or people with a lust for power realise there aren't bad consequences. If you break the rules, you actually succeed. Because the desire to imitate then is reinforced everywhere. Yeah, I I think that's right. I think there are fashions in global politics as there are in most other things. And... There was always going to be some sort of backlash against the kind of end of history period when it seemed like there was one way of doing things, the sort of Washington consensus in economics and also kind of Washington consensus in politics, the convergence around liberal democracy and and so on. But, but when Putin's efforts are crowned with success and then obviously even more China becomes the model of an alternative way of doing things – And I think pre-Xi Jinping, China firstly had moved towards a more collective style of leadership. I mean, Hu Jintao, who was Xi's predecessor, was a very colorless figure, and I think was part of a sort of communist party collective, whereas Xi moves back towards a personality cult, and in conjunction with that, really ramps up the sort of anti-Western, anti-liberal rhetoric and given that the West has gone through the Iraq war, the financial crisis, it's not that hard for the Chinese in particular to make the case that, you know, we're the fastest growing economy in the world, we represent the future, and the Western democracies are in trouble. And so she uses that sort of broader narrative about China to validate his style of leadership. So then if you have both Russia and China 
in different ways, kicking back against Western liberal parties, if I can put it that way. It's pretty attractive. And I think it, it remains so. I mean, I was just looking at the the news this morning and America's trying to hold a summit of the of Latin America. You'd, you'd think their backyard, they would be able to attract, you know, basically whoever they want to invite. But it looks like both Mexico and Brazil will boycott it. And I don't think it's a, a coincidence that they're both led by strongman leaders who don't like being lectured by the Americans and who have in China an alternative uh, that they can look to. Yes, uh, let's stick with the end of history. I actually read Fukuyama's book for the first time a year ago, and it's far, mm-hmm. it's far more subtle and complex oh, yeah. than people give it credit for. But I was, I was interested to read in his foreword that what would prove his ideas wrong would be Chinese success. Let's stick with China because that's by far and away the most important country you discuss. First of all, it's possible that China could have had at least some kind of democracy or argument within the Communist Party and carried on on its growth path. I hear what you say about uh, Western weakness, Western failure, but why specifically does the Chinese Communist Party, a vast institution in itself, allow itself to be taken over by a personality, quote, in a quasi, well, actual dictatorial figure? Well, I mean, I think it's it's very interesting. And what you know, maybe historians will establish what happened because it's not clear to me they knew what she would represent. If you look back to the run up to the the crucial party congress where he is elected, not elected, appointed, but uh, elected by his kind of immediate peers, I suppose, the the sort of dictator in the making in China looks to be a guy called Bo Chi Lai, who is running the vast city of Chongqing, and who is already talking about creating some of the nostalgia for Mao, who is a kind of Chinese authoritarian populist, much more flamboyant figure than the previous uh, generation of leaders. And he is regarded by Chinese liberals as a dangerous guy. And there's a certain rejoicing when he gets mixed up in a Baroque murder, which appears not to be a frame-up. It looks like uh, his wife really did murder a British businessman they were uh, mixed up with. And so Bo's fall from grace happens. And there's a, almost a sort of sigh of relief that, that instead you have Xi Jinping, who's regarded as a much more known quantity who comes to power. But in fact, very quickly, he starts firstly kicking back against the expectations of Chinese liberals or hopes. And you have to kind of go back a bit to recall that it wasn't, as you say, it, was, it wasn't at all inevitable that they would move back towards a more authoritarian, more personalized system. There were a, a large group of influential people who thought that, OK, well, maybe China wouldn't move to being, you know, one man, one vote overnight, but that it would, for example, move towards establishing independent courts, having a slightly freer media, establishing some of the qualities of a liberal society, and then maybe eventually get to a democracy. But she very, very quickly gives a speech saying that's not going to happen and says then and has consistently said ever since that Western ideas such as independent courts are poison for China and must be resisted. And I think when you look back at what influences she, as well as personal ambition, which I don't think you can ever discount, of course. Th- th- there's also just a, a sense that He's very influenced by the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of the first things he does is circulate a film about the collapse of the Soviet Union, which to to Communist Party cadres saying, you know, this is because of the folly of Gorbachev. 
the way in which he trashed the Soviet Union's great history and nobody was man enough to stand up to him and the whole place fell apart and a great country and a great sort of Soviet experiment collapsed and we're not going to let that happen in China. So that's really what he's about very, very quickly. And then it morphs into the creation of a personality cult, the abolition of term limits for the Chinese presidency, which had been carefully put in place by Deng Xiaoping, Mm -hmm. just to avoid there being another Mao. And then the incorporation of Xi Jinping thought into the Chinese constitution, which is classic personality cult stuff, to the point where this year, later this year in November, he's meant to be appointed for a third term as general secretary of the party. One thing I don't like about Western commentators, including myself in my worst moments, is we we don't accept our own faults. One thing is very clear from your book that we got wrong, or the West got wrong, or the Washington consensus, call it what you will, was a belief very convenient to business, incidentally, that Yes, yes, yes. Bring China into the world trade organizations, encourage trade, let Germany do whatever deals it wants with Russia, because off itself, the expansion of markets, globalization will inevitably bring a stronger middle class that will, that will bring democracy. And one thing that's very, very clear from reading your book is that idea just lies in ruins. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, I I think historians will one day sort of maybe, particularly if if China and the US eventually come into conflict, scratch their heads about why the US was so relaxed about the rise of this large authoritarian power. But I think it's partly because we did slightly drink the end of history Kool-Aid. And and essential to that view was the idea that as George Bush, W. Bush put it, trade freely with China and time is on our side. There was a strong connection made in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union that uh, between a successful economy, a free economy, as they saw it, and and the inevitability of democracy. So there was this belief, a kind of ideological belief that, yes, if, if China opened up economically, if they allowed private enterprise, and they would have to do that, we felt, then uh, they would have to change politically, that that a free policy would would flow from that inevitably. And that was wrong. And I think that by the time it becomes apparent that it's wrong, there are then very, very entrenched business interests uh, who don't want to acknowledge that it's wrong because China is now crucial to the global economy and to the business models of, you know, most, if not all, Western multinationals. So, um, you know, if you have an Apple iPhone, it will say, designed in California, manufactured in China, uh, you know, for the big Western car companies, for VW, for example, it's their biggest market outside Germany, et cetera, et cetera. China's the world's largest manufacturer, the world's largest exporter. So by the time people begin to wake up to the idea that, oh, we actually kind of deceived ourselves about the political effects of all this economic opening, uh, it's, it's really arguably too late to disentangle it. And not just for business, for consumers who are used to as, as we're finding out now, as uh, COVID is shutting down Chinese ports, that are used to cheap Chinese, well-made technology, furniture, you name it. Yeah, absolutely. One can be a little too, uh, you know, it suits, it, suits, it suits us who have got, who are equally hooked on this as much as Germany is hooked on Russian gas. Completely. I mean, you know, the period of 
very low inflation in the West is very closely connected to the the provision of cheap goods from China. And in a way, it's one of the reasons the West can get away with rising inequality is that even the, the bottom of the pile, the people who aren't doing so well and whose real incomes may be falling, are able to buy a lot of cheap stuff, you know, that, that consumer goods become become much more available. And there's also cheap credit, partly because of the integration of China into the economy. One thing I think will strike conservative British readers, they might bridle at the inclusion of Boris Johnson in what is a gallery of grotesque and repressive leaders. <laughs> yeah. H- how do you justify that? Well, I'd be interested to know what you think, because you've also been quite critical of, of Boris Johnson. So maybe when I finished answering, you tell me what you think. But I, I, well, I justify it partly because, you know, I spent quite a lot of time outside Britain talking to foreigners about world politics. And certainly after 2016, Brexit and Trump were very closely linked in people's minds. You know, they became almost a single phrase, Brexit and Trump, as this shock to the liberal world order. And so I don't think you can really discuss Donald Trump without discussing what happened in the UK six months earlier. And I think that to some extent, Trump and and Boris Johnson, who was after all the, you know, the key figure in the Brexit campaign, do share some characteristics. And indeed, you know, Trump happens to be in the UK when the vote happens. I think he's playing golf up in Scotland. And he immediately understands its significance and says, this shows we'll win in November. And then Johnson when he breaks with Theresa May, starts talking about Donald Trump as a potential role model for for how Britain should conduct its relations with the EU. He says, you know, we've been too gentle, too law-abiding, kind of goody-goodies, and we should go in and break the furniture like Trump. You know, I think he says that's a very interesting thought. And then indeed, he, he follows through to some extent, actually more in the UK itself than in the relationship with the EU, because there's a power asymmetry with the EU. But in Britain... Obviously, some of his first actions are to expel some of the leading members of his party, which is a kind of unprecedented action, and uh, then to prorogue Parliament, uh, which is ruled illegal by the Supreme Court. And the people around him, like Dominic Cummings, who I think is, if you like, the kind of British Steve Bannon, are, are very explicit, saying, you know, Cummings starts talking about bullshit legal advice and how it should be ignored. And I think that is a very classic strongman thing. It's it's saying that the country is in crisis, so we can't afford to play by traditional liberal rules, you know, the law and all of that stuff. We need a strongman figure who will break through all of this. And although Boris Johnson is now a deeply diminished figure, if you look back to the, the Brexit period, he was treated as a saviour by the Tory party as this sort of flamboyant, strong figure who would break with the weakness of the May years. So I think at the key period of getting Brexit done, he very much was in the strongman uh, tradition. And you could argue, uh, however diminished he is, it's it's still going on. Balls have been set rolling and they're carrying on rolling. Like, I'm just astonished at how little commentary there is that the next election there will be ID cards, which will probably knock about 2 million potential voters out, which who Johnson thinks are unlikely to vote Conservative, that the Electoral Commission will be controlled by the governing party. The BBC is just 
partly because of Johnson and Cummings, but going back to the Tories, is just now strikes me as a hugely diminished and rather frightened journalistic institution. These things still carry on happening, however however unpopular Boris Johnson becomes and will have an effect at the next election. I, I, I agree. And I, I think that, you know, one of the conclusions I drew about writing this tr- sort of big international comparative study is that complacency is incredibly dangerous, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, he just says it, you know, as, as people said of Trump, you should take him seriously, but not literally, you know, and, and there's the British in particular, because we're very proud of our democratic traditions are also very complacent about them saying, you know, it couldn't happen here. And because we were never invaded in the, in the, in, in the 20th century, never had fascism, yeah. never had communism, which to my mind leads to a kind, to exactly what you said, to complacency, to frivolity, to uh, a kind of dilettantism about, uh, about politics. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, you know, you mentioned the Electoral Commission stuff, you know, when, when even the former head of MI5 says this is extremely dangerous, you know, a man who's steeped in in the instincts of a security state, but he says this is a threat to our democracy, I think perhaps you should, you should notice. Do you think the war in Ukraine changes anything? Do you think for the next edition of your book, you will look at some of the things you've said and perhaps tweak a bit? Because to me, I, I cannot think of an event in the 21st century where the stakes have been so high. If Russia were to win, thank God it doesn't look like it can, that would seem to empower not just Putin, but all the people you write about. If the Russian army collapses, which is possible, military people say, do, do you think that will have wider consequences beyond ending the suffering of the people of Ukraine? Yes, I, I I think so. And I hope so. I mean, yes, of course, I'll have to update to take into account both Putin's decision and some of the consequences, although they're still playing out right now. But to put it put it another way, I mean, I think if Putin had won the quick victory that he was clearly assuming he would win, if he won in three days, then I think the whole strongman tendency around the world would have had a massive boost in prestige. And um, it would have been a very, very dangerous moment uh, because I think behind the strongman ideal, if you like, and is and not very far behind or not very far beneath the surface, is the rhetoric of violence and the belief in war. And of course, we know in the 1930s, the strongman era then of Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, etc., was closely associated with, with war. And Putin broke that... To, you know, current modern day, not taboo. Well, taboo about anyone other than the United States using that kind of force. And I think if he'd won very quickly, people like Xi in China would have been very tempted to uh, to push ahead with the threatened invasion of Taiwan. You know, there's quite a strong sort of martial instinct in, in India. And I think, you know, one of the, some Indian friends say to me that one of the reasons for the reluctance of Indian to condemn what Putin is doing in Russia is they see Pakistan as sort of analogous to Ukraine as this smaller country that needs to be put in its place. So I think the temptation to resort to violence as a sort of validating, chest-beating, strongman thing would have been huge. And I think the prestige of the West would have plummeted because remember, this was six months after the debacle of the Afghan withdrawal. If you then had another major geopolitical setback for the United States would look really bad. The question is, 
Will we um, get the opposite, a, a collapse in the prestige of the strongman project because of what Putin has done? It's possible, but I, I, I fear it's not going to be quite that straightforward. That, because that, that, that was very much my feeling reading your book, that because you're so comprehensive, I keep thinking, well, how's, how's this going to work in Hungary? How's this going to work in Israel? How's this going to work in India or Saudi Arabia? And... You don't get a feeling that, yeah, 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 these are historical aberrations who will be swept away as their own faults are revealed. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think the prestige of the model may suffer a bit. I mean, you can see it, for example, in the way that Viktor Orban has sort of kept a bit quiet, uh, whereas I think if Putin had won, um, he would have been much more triumphant. Indeed, some people even think that Hungary might have tried to grab a little bit of Ukraine itself. But uh, but they'll be back, you know, and uh, and obviously the big hinge point is what happens in the 2024 US presidential election. Indeed. If, as I think, I'm afraid, quite likely, Donald Trump wins either without cheating or with some sort of, uh, you know, challenge to the to the election, then I think, you know, we're right back in it uh, because obviously the cultural and political power of the United States is enormous. Trump did a lot of damage even when he was there because what he did, as well as all the stuff he did to the United States and changes in concrete foreign policy, is he changed the rhetoric of America. So he basically embraced Putin's arguments that that all America's stuff about liberalism and democracy is just hypocrisy. Do you remember there was a period when he was asked by an American television interviewer, he said, you know, but doesn't Putin kill a lot of people? And Trump says, yeah, but let me tell you, we kill a lot of people as well. So he's essentially saying there's no real difference between us and them. Uh, and that is exactly the argument made by the Russians, the Chinese, and so on. Yes. Also, another theme of your book is early in the 20th century, and I had Russian friends say this to me, yes, Putin's absurd. Yes, he's corrupt. Uh, yes, the regime has a few nasty aspects, but it's nothing compared to fascism and communism. We can live good lives in Russia. W one point you make in your book, and it comes across very strongly, is as the 21st century has gone on, these regimes have got uglier and more oppressive, whether you're looking at China, Hungary, Modi in India, whoever. Turkey, uh, it's a very Turkey, good example. Turkey, very good example. A second Trump term, I think, would be far harder. I, I agree. I, and I think, I think, you know, he is a bit of a buffoon, but even buffoons learn. And I think that he would start where he left off so that you wouldn't have these establishment figures that were originally there like H.R. McMaster and Rex Tillerson, even Mnuchin to some degree, you would have pure MAGA people, make America great again people, you know, Mark Meadows would come back. Some of the names being bandied around for Trump's possible Secretary of State are extraordinary, you know, by normal standards. And, uh, you know, you can tell how far we've, we've fallen that John Bolton, who was regarded as this sort of epitome of American nationalism mm -hmm. now comes across as a, a sort of relative man of honour, uh, you know, who in the end couldn't stomach what Trump was doing. Yes, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get, there were plenty of officials, I've heard some of them speak, Republicans, who went in because they thought it was their duty, they were Republican partisans, and because they wanted to temper Trump. That, that whole movement you got in 2016 just simply wouldn't happen again. No, I, I don't think so. And, and also, I mean, I think that there's a terrible... We, we're talking about the way Putin appeared to be validated by success. 
there, if Trump comes back, then, of course, all the people, and including in our own country, I'm afraid, who might have been sort of sitting on the fence would say, well, you know, he's been validated. He's, this is the way of the future. And that is the, the idea of who owns the future is, is very, very important. I mean, I think that Orban has this slightly sinister phrase where he says, uh, we used to think that uh, Europe was our future, but now we know we are, we are Europe's future. And I think that, you know, at the height of the sort of the 1990s, the liberal democratic politicians of the period, the sort of Blair's, Clinton's, were very forward looking. You know, obviously Blair's song was Things Can Only Get Better. Clinton talks about building a bridge to the 21st century. They seem to, to, to have a vision of the future that's both optimistic and convincing. But the trouble is, you know, with a Joe Biden in, in power, and I think he's done okay, but nonetheless, you know, what is the vision of the future that he's promoting? He's an old guy. He seems to be sort of playing defense. He's, he's, uh, whereas these guys have a, have a, have a view of the future, a very reactionary view and a slightly frightening view, but they do sort of think they know where they're going. A view of the future built by mythologizing the past. Throughout your book, it's it, time and time again, there are regimes harking back to China before China went China when it was a great power, India as a, a as a Hindu power, um, uh, Orban re- rebuilding uh, white Catholic white Christian Europe, Johnson, in a way trying to make Britain great again. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely, yeah. Gideon, stay parochial and stay with our country just finally. What do you think people should be concentrating on who are opposed to what the Conservatives and the Faragis right are offering? What tactics do you think, what arguments do you think they should be putting forward that they're perhaps not doing at the moment? Well, I mean, I think there's, there's, a, there's a sort of um, an institutional question and a political question, by which I mean, I think part of what you should be doing is being very zealous about trying to protect institutions. We talked about things like the Electoral Commission and so on, sort of watch for those little changes and and make a fuss, you know, to mobilise opposition. Don't just sort of shrug in the British manner and say, oh, well, you know, probably won't really matter. Because these cumulative changes to the independence of institutions, the checks and balances really do matter. I think politically... Yeah, it, I think there's a very interesting, if that doesn't sound too bloodless, dilemma for those who want to oppose strongman politics is to what extent do you recognize that they have established a successful formula uh, that does appeal to people voting freely and that you have to, if you want to be elected, you can't stick with the old liberal parties because you'll lose. And, uh, all, and to what extent do you say, actually, no, we're not going to follow them down the path of ideas that we regard as dangerous or repellent? And I think the, the classic thing that, well, there are two, really, um, that, that Starmer will have to wrestle with uh, are immigration and culture war stuff, where I think Johnson, you know, particularly as the economy gets weaker and weaker, We'll ramp this up. And I'm told that, you know, the whole Rwanda resettlement stuff is driven as much by number 10 as by Pretty Patel. And that's because they look at the opinion polls and they can see it's popular. Now, I think sort of every, you know, I mean, of course, Johnson is now talking about Islington lawyers, you know, despite being in a, an Islington resident himself and having been married to one of them. But Starmer is obviously easily caricatured as this sort of liberal London lawyer who's going to, you know, throw 
obstacles in the way of the people. And I don't, I, I don't know exactly where you strike the balance. But I think that at some level, the Labour Party here, the Democrats in the US, do have to take into account people's deep desire for a control of borders, for control of immigration, and, and channel it into a way that is both can work politically, but that isn't sort of shockingly unfair, illiberal. And that's a huge challenge. And then I think the culture war stuff is very important. Obviously, what they want to do is to lure labor onto the ground where it's defending, ripping down statues and uh, trans rights. And then they think they win. And trans rights, incidentally, has become this weird global litmus test so that even Putin takes a break from the Ukraine war to send greetings to J.K. Rowling, who, fair enough to her, you know, rejects them, but she doesn't want that embrace. But nonetheless, they can see this is a, a touchpoint issue. And, you know, I was talking to a friend yesterday who'd just been in the States and been with a bunch of Republican businessmen who were all behind Trump. And they would say, well, you know, yes, January the 6th was bad, but trans rights, you know, it, it's yeah. something that really gets people going. And these cultural issues, I think even more than economics, are what drives forward the kind of strongman people. At the moment, Labour hasn't really fought this out at all. But on that dilemma, Gideon, on that dilemma of how far do you imitate your opponents in order to beat them, uh, I'm afraid we will have to leave it. Uh, before I go, I should just say that The Bunker comes out uh, six times a week. It's great. You can uh, like us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. That's good. Give us a nice review. You can uh, pay a few quid and sign up to our Patreon service, which gives you all kinds of free goodies and uh, uh, exclusive shows that, that the hoi polloi can't hear. There's Oh God, What's Now, which is, um, and uh, we have Doomsday Watch, which I'm very, very fond of by Arthur Snell, which gives you absolutely top-class commentary on, on the Ukraine war. All it remains for me to do is to thank Gideon. The Age of the Strong Man, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World. It's praised by just about everyone you want to be praised by, Catherine Belt and Anne Applebaum, all the good people. It is an excellent book, and... It's been a delight to talk to its author, Gideon. Thank you very much for appearing on the programme. Thank you for having me, Nick. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. Producers were Jacob Archibald, Yelena Sofonievich and Alex Rees. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Dave Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.